You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach for the recount, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm the super depressed Lakers fan, LZ Granderson. He's the even more depressed Knicks fan, Will Leach. But I have a Illini fever. Go Illini. The NCAA tournament is here. All that matters is Illinois winning the national championship once in my lifetime before I die. We have a full slate of stuff today as always. But before we get started, I do want to invite all of you, our handsome, attractive, beautiful listeners, to join our the long game Will Leach newsletter NCAA basketball tournament pool. You can find it on the Recounts Twitter feed. Links to the pool will be posted there. You can also find it on williamfleach.substack.com. I write this newsletter every week. It is free. You should subscribe. Once you do, you can find links to both the men's and women's brackets in the newsletter as well. The winners will get to join me and LZ to discuss any sports subject they want. Anything. Anything at all. You'll do such a good job. LZ will fire me and make you the new co-host, which sounds... Actually, this is a terrible idea. Nevertheless, join. Join and you can win. So come play along with us. It's very fun. Find it on the recount page or find it on my personal Substack, which is not one of the non-woke subsects. I just found I had hiring and firing power. <laughs> You've always said, oh my God, I should have not told you. All right. Now that we have that business out of the way, here's what we have lined up on today's program. First, speaking of my immortal, incredible, unstoppable Kofi Coburn, Trent Frazier, and the Illinois Fighting Illini, we're going to preview the NCAA college basketball tournaments. The men start on Tuesday night and the women begin on Wednesday, both with their two first four games. College basketball has fallen off in popularity in recent years, at least with people who are not me, but the NCAA tournaments are so immensely popular, they keep the sport highly relevant every single year. LZ, March Madness is truly the gift that keeps on giving to the otherwise quite undeserving NCAA. You gotta have a reason to drink Jack and Diet, Will. You gotta have a reason. <laughs> you do not need a reason. Then we'll discuss Florida's parental rights and education bill, otherwise known as the Don't Say Gay bill, which the Florida Senate passed last week and Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to sign shortly. We'll get into the details in a bit, but this bill has received heavy criticism because it will limit teachers from talking about sexual orientation and will likely stigmatize already marginalized students. However, only one athlete, tennis player Coco Golf, has spoken out against it. Will, athletes have become very vocal about a lot of political and social issues, but they sure aren't talking about this one. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I don't know if you noticed this. This is truly terrible, but my God, Elsie, there's a lot going on. We'll also dig into the always lucrative and somewhat turbulent times of the most famous owner in sports, the president and general manager of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones. Last week, 
Jones was sued by a 25-year-old woman who's claiming that he's her biological father and that Jones paid her mother $375,000 to keep quiet about it. This is just another example of Jones' controversial behavior over the years, yet he remains immensely powerful in the NFL and overall a popular figure in sports. Somehow, LZ, Jerry Jones always skates by. It's Jerry's world, baby. It's Jerry's world. Yeah, that would explain a lot, actually. That would explain a lot why everything sucks. <laughs> then we'll wrap up the show with this week in sports history and look back at Phil Jackson's reputation-destroying tenure as president of the New York Knickerbockers. And we'll also answer questions from you, our loyal audience. But before we get to our top three stories, LZ, let's say something that, frankly, I thought we were done with forever. Let's talk about Tom Brady. Ah, uh, I missed him. Didn't you? I missed him so much, it's like he was never gone. I'm friends with Matt Norlander, who covers college basketball for CBS. His is his one day of the year, LZ. It's the one day of the year people are looking at college basketball. And like <laughs> half an hour after the bracket comes out, Brady tweets that. So mean. So mean. What did you think of the Brady news? So, well, honestly, it had the feeling to me that he made a decision based upon the coverage of his decision mm -hmm. before he was really ready to make the decision for himself. If you recall the timeline, it was broken by a number of reporters, definitely Adam Schefter. I think Field Gates might've been involved, mm -hmm. but the breaking of the news, I think took Tom Brady by surprise because I don't think he had actually come to a decision yet. And once people started talking about it, and started saying, you know, goodbye to the goat, goodbye to the goat. I think he kind of leaned into it <laughs> and said, yes, I'm saying goodbye. I am the goat. You're welcome, America. I, exactly. And then he sat at the house and said, I lost my fucking last game to Matthew Stafford. Fuck that. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Several people have joked. He spent one day in the carpool line and was like, uh, uh never mind. I'm going to go play football. Forget this. I, I think he saw Aaron Rodgers' salary. It was like $50 million a year. Yeah. Fuck yeah. this. Yeah, I could destroy myself for that. It is funny, though. Like Athletes are so weird about this stuff, right? I interviewed Shaq one time, and I told him that I watched him play for the Magic against the Timberwolves in the mid-'90s. He's like, oh, yeah, we lost that game. I was great, but Penny was terrible. I went back home, and that was exactly right. Like, I looked it up, and he had the details <laughs> of the, the thousands of games that Shaq played. He remembered every detail. The great athletes are like that. The idea that he would let that be his last game, in retrospect, makes a certain amount of sense that he would not let that happen. And listen, the Buccaneers clearly... They left a spot open. They didn't go sign somebody. Like, clearly, they were holding right. out some sort of hope in this. Now that he's come back, I think it's telling that a lot of people are like, oh, he's going to play until he's 50 now. Because this is what he always said, right? He always said he <laughs> wanted to play until he's 50. And I think he's going to come back now. Remember, his contract's up after this year. After the season's over, he can go play wherever he wants. There's a certain logic, I think, to him playing more years now. And perhaps more to the point, I will never believe him when he says he retires again the rest <laughs> of his career. The thing that I thought was interesting was if you look at some of the coverage in Boston of his announcement, they're kind of over him, <laughs> you know, and maybe they're starting to see what the rest of us have seen for years, 
which is, yes, he's a great quarterback. Yes, he's done things no other quarterback has done in the history of the game. And it's very hard to imagine a quarterback coming anytime soon to repeat some of his accomplishments. But it's also true that he's kind of a self-centered, privileged, like, jerk in some ways. And he uses that privilege very selectively, not like Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers uses his privilege to put his big foot on the screen or something like that, or or say, I'm immunized. You know, that's how he uses his privilege. But Tom Brady uses his privilege to duck criticism. And some of it is him consciously. Some of it is the media that's covering him that's doing it on his behalf. But I think now that Boston has kind of witnessed the coverage when he's someone else's player, the coverage of his announcement of coming out of retirement wasn't met with a, oh, this great player is coming back. It was, he's a drama queen. And it's like, yes, people, he's always been a drama queen. It's just, he was your drama queen, so you didn't really notice. (laughs) I think that's exactly right. Because he's the greatest quarterback of all time. I think he instantly makes the Buccaneers a Super Bowl contender. He's great. It's unbelievable what he's doing. And I'm still sick of him. <laughs> I'm still sick of it. Don't want to look at it. Again, I've made this joke when he retired, but someday my grandchildren are going to be like, Tom Brady was the best quarterback of all time. What was it like watching him play? And I'm like, well, everyone made photoshops of penises on his head and, 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 and called him a fascist. That is that is your favorite analogy, by the way. It. You always run to just the- to Brady. Maybe because I've seen so many photoshops of penises on Brady's head. I can't get it out of my mind. Uh, anyway, so welcome back to that, Tom Brady, to your new reality. Welcome back to that. You know, it's interesting to the quarterback situation, starting with Russell Wilson in the NFC with Seattle, moving to the AFC, changes that dynamic. Brady's looking at an NFC that has several 30-some-year-old quarterbacks who are still fighting. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't see a Patrick Mahomes in the NFC a young guy who looks like he's just going to own this conference for a while, or Josh Allen. I don't know about you, Will, but I also think that the makeup of the conference also played into his decision because he saw there were opportunities that he could still squeeze through and maybe get another ring. Yeah, I mean, Kyler Murray has not turned into Josh no. Allen. And no. There's not those young quarterbacks there that I think we're supposed to be there. Well, welcome back, Tom Brady. <laughs> we look forward to talking about your retirement again next January <laughs> and you're coming back next March. Okay, LZ, let's move on and talk about our first big topic, one of the few things that unite sports fans and non-sports fans everywhere, the NCAA college basketball tournaments. Let's begin the reveal. Here are the tournament brackets from the NCAA. The overall number one seed, Gonzaga, with the Bulldogs playing in the West region. First and second round, Portland, Oregon. Here comes Gonzaga. (laughs) And we know what kind of a day they had championship night a year ago they're looking to switch that around that was the moment from cbs's selection sunday show on sunday night when gonzaga was announced as the top seed in the men's bracket of the ncaa college basketball tournament both the men's and women's tournaments begin this week so suddenly after ignoring college basketball for months the rest of you not me are suddenly all in i've always been all in i love this sport so dumbly and so much LZ, I do want to break down some of the top storylines with you, like Coach K retiring after Duke's last game, some of the NBA's top projected draft picks. They will be in this tournament this year for the first time in a while. And both tournaments are wide open with many teams having serious shots at winning a title. 
But most of all, I kind of just want to marvel at the popularity of March Madness itself. It's estimated that 40 million people will fill out their own brackets this year, even though a relatively small percentage of them watched any college basketball at all during the regular season. What is it about this tournament for a sport that is fading, for a sport that is not nearly as popular as it used to be, for a sport that only nerds like me are into? What is it about this tournament that remains so eternally appealing to people? Um, that you don't have to know anything. yeah that's i mean that's the american way (laughs) that literally is it yeah that either you are an expert or a novice or someone who really doesn't care about sports that for these few weeks you get to parachute into this excitement participate and not have to know a single damn thing and enjoy every moment of it. It's like dropping into the third season of Game of Thrones and you didn't need to watch the first two seasons. You just get to start, boom, red ready. Oh my God, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what it's like. Shit, dog. I think you could probably comb through a lot of people who do not cover college basketball, but cover sports, who could name you five college players, starting with me. I'll be honest with you. I think I've watched maybe 10 games this season. In part because, one, there's a lot of other more pressing things going on, particularly in Europe, but also the fact that the past two years, nothing in life has been Mm. normal, right? Two years of political upheaval, two years of dealing with the pandemic, two years of our sports schedule being blown up. Everything has been jumbled for the past two years. And now as we enter into this tournament, we're wondering if we're also entering into World War III. When you think about everything that's going on with a sport, to your point, that had already been in decline, recognizing that the NFL is sucking up whatever oxygen is left in the world of sports, and then the pressing things of our everyday lives, inflation, gas prices. I mean, it's a lot. And so being able to parachute into a sport Hmm and not have to pay attention to enjoy it is still very appealing. It's like the Super Bowl in a lot of ways. Yeah. You don't need to know who's the starting right tackle to enjoy the Super Bowl. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you don't even need to know the quarterback because it, it's all about Dr. Dre the halftime show anyway. <laughs> it is hilarious to me. I was talking to someone the other day who doesn't watch sports at all. Like literally doesn't like, never minding could not name five college basketball players. Are they a players. psychopath? Would, yeah, they, they actually are much more normal than we are. They don't watch any sports at all. <laughs> and they looked at me with passion and certainty and said, oh, I really like South Dakota State over Providence. I totally like South Dakota State <laughs> over Providence. And that is the joy of the tournament, right? And for the record, I also like South Dakota State over Providence. And like, there's something about the, the bracket itself. Certain games click right. Certain things feel right. The tournament is all about hunches. It's all about feeling good. Uh, my wife always says, I just always pick North Carolina. This seems like a bad year to do that, but who knows? Like, that's the thing. Who is knows? that like, this, that's the fun of the tournament. That is the reason I love this tournament and why it really does kind of get away with everything. And for the record, there's a lot of ugly stuff this tournament does. I think that gets forgotten. The example I always use in this is I covered the tournament when Shabazz Napier was playing for Connecticut. Uh, five, six years ago. And he literally had just given an interview that weekend talking about like, I don't have enough food 
to eat. I'm a star basketball player on a team trying to win the national championship, and I am not being properly fed. I'm not getting good nutrition because they're not paying me any money here. And I remember seeing him interviewed after the game on this big screen. And to his credit, he brought it up. He's like, I'm glad we won the national championship. But just to remind everyone, this is still a situation that's going on. College basketball, NIL has not fixed that. Not having a cop in charge of everything suddenly did not make things better for the players generally across the board. There's a lot of ugliness in the sport. When you see how much money this tournament brings in, Remember, LZ, they're not sponsors of the tournament. They're corporate champions. Do not forget yes. that they are the corporate champions <laughs> at Buick or, yes. or, or Papa John's or wherever the hell that is sponsoring this dumb thing. And is that still a thing? I, 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 it's ugly. Like, there's a lot of ugliness. My, my friend Jason uh, Gay, who writes the Wall Street Journal, always jokes about how it's so corporate that you cannot bring in your own drinking receptacle. You have to bring in a drinking receptacle that has the sponsor's name on the yep. side or you can't drink. Like It's really, really ugly for a sport that, oh, just to remind doesn't pay its players. <laughs> like, right. It's totally, totally really ugly sport. But it's also more than any other sport in, in North America, any other sport, it feels the most national. Now, I don't mean that people love it nationally. It's so much more popular. I mean, it happens everywhere. There are teams in this tournament from Rhode mm -hmm. Island. There are teams in this tournament from Wyoming. There are teams in this tournament from Florida. There are teams in this tournament from Vermont and Oregon and all over the place. Like the, That is the fun of this tournament. One of my favorite examples of this is when North, Northwestern State hit a last second shot against Iowa like 10 years ago. Northwestern State is a tiny school in Notchacaucus, Louisiana. I can never say the town right. It's like this very tiny <laughs> town that has like Burt Reynolds on like a boat fighting gators uh, through it. But for one hour, every 10 years, they're the center of the sports universe. And that is something about the tournament I think appeals to a lot of people and a lot of people really, really like. And so that's why they get away with it. That's why the tournament's so fun. And uh, it's why uh, I have cleared out my entire schedule on Thursday and Friday to be able to watch every single one of these games. But there's also, though, two other factors. And I agree with you. The national aspect of it, the passion for all the pockets around the country as this tournament is taking place. For whatever reasons, people gravitate for an affinity for the university itself. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you are an alum, whether your child goes there or a family member goes there, or you've always liked the colors. Like I've always rooted for Georgetown because of the starter jackets. Yeah, yeah, like I get no, that. No other reason than yeah. the freaking starter jackets for years, for years and years and years. And then Iverson showed up, and I kind of cared then. Yeah. That was, like, basically yeah. kind of it, because I was kind of too young to really enjoy, like, the Patrick yeah. Ewing years when he was there. Definitely enjoyed Dikembe and Zoe when they were playing there. But it was really Iverson mm. that made me care about Georgetown. But before all of that, it was a fashion yeah. thing. Georgetown starter jackets were the shit. Yeah. And so when they played, <laughs> you know, you kind of gravitated towards that. I think there's all sorts of non-basketball reasons why this tournament is successful. And having an affinity for a certain university, for whatever reasons, is part of it. But I also believe that another factor into why this tournament still matters to a lot of people is because when you go back and you look at that picture of a young, sweet-faced, and innocent Steph Curry trying to get Davidson to push through all these giants, those stories still appeal to yeah. people. The David versus Goliath story is still in vogue. And because of that, you have a college tournament that still allows for David to have a fighting chance. Yeah. David doesn't have a fucking chance in hell in college football. <laughs> right, right. No. David, <laughs> you know? David dies. David literally David dies. dies. <laughs> yes, yes. But in basketball, because of 
the dynamics between the one and dones and all of the other factors that goes to the composition of a roster, whether it's someone who should have gone to a top tier school, but didn't get accepted to the school or got in trouble or what have you, had to go through community college and then transferred. Like those different dynamics are coming into play. You have mid-majors where maybe 20 years ago, having a 21-year-old or a starting five of all 21-year-olds wasn't unusual, but today it is. And so you have a difference in terms of strength and a difference in terms of experience and crunch time situations, whereas a talented team like maybe in Kentucky, who has a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds in their starting five, they may be more athletic or more talented looking, but they don't have that grown man strength. And so that dynamic, you get to play out in a different way during this tournament. And for those of us who grew up watching the UNLVs and the Dukes and the Michigans, where you saw guys go in over and over and over again, watching that still be a factor, having older players, it's also an appealing part for me. It allows me to reminisce, to your point, on this nostalgic tip without being blindsided by the fact that this is a horrible sport with a horrible business model that takes advantage of the, the one thing that we care about, which is these kids. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It is a monstrosity. I can't believe they uh, persist by doing this every year. So let's get our final fours. So my, <laughs> so uh, I tend to be... Wait, wait, wait. All right, hold uh, yes, on. Yes, Let yes, me yes, pull yes. up my little trusty, dusty notepad here. And for the record, just to remind, our, we are doing a break for both the men's and women's tournament. So I will give you my women's first... Here's my dirty secret about all of my brackets. I love when upsets happen. I never pick them. The smart play is generally not to pick a lot of upsets. It's just not the smart way to win your pool. <laughs> it's fun, and you can feel like, like you've got a cool hunch. But by like the mm -hmm. final four, generally it's just the big dogs left. In women's, my final four is South Carolina, Louisville, North Carolina State, and Texas. So three number one seeds. And the championship game is North Carolina State over South Carolina. North my Carolina State? Yeah, the Wolfpack, baby. Wolfpack, number one overall seed. It's on. Wait. No Valvano. No Valvano this time. It's, it's, it's North there. Carolina State? I know. You're not picking South saying. Carolina? No, I'm picking North Carolina State. Mississippi State won this thing a couple of years ago. Like, this is kind of the fun. No, of I this. was just going to say, I like the tournament for this conversation right here. Because every now and then, a result comes out of the women's bracket that penetrates the patriarchal industry that we both work mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And they actually show the highlights. <laughs> and every now and then, ESPN will even make a top 10 appearance from the women's game, which yeah. really only really happens in March. <laughs> I'll put it this way. Men's sports have not grown a lot outside of football in the last five or 10 years. Women's sports have. Uh, I think that's an have. undeniable uh, growth. I'm, thing to I'm look looking at. at the bracket here that you pulled up, and I still can't believe you got NC State coming. Through. They're good. They're like, the, they're, like I'm not making it up. Like, a, like they're a popular pick. I'm, I'm going to assume because, I mean, I haven't seen them, but it's like I don't recall ever hearing anyone saying, oh, this is for sure. I'm not ready to stake the lives of my children on I'm, it, though they are kind of annoying me right now, so maybe. I mean, I'm I'm looking over, because you watch more than I do, and I don't want to look stupid, 
So no, I'm like, <laughs> again, that's what's so fun about this tournament. You're going to beat me. I watch so much college basketball and you're going to beat me, I assure you. So in the men's, uh, I, again, I'm the one that's no fun. I, again, have almost all chalk. I have three number one seeds. This is probably going to be wrong, A, because the odds are against me anyway. But B, this is a weird year because of the COVID year. A lot of people got an extra year. One of my great stats about my Illini this year is their starting lineup is older than five NBA teams starting lineups <laughs> because everyone has been able to hang around because of the COVID year. They got an extra grad transfer year. There are players on, on Illinois that are 24 years old. <laughs> so, they can beat the Memphis Grizzlies is what you're saying? They can't beat the Memphis Grizzlies, but they are older than the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, <laughs> so my picks are Gonzaga, Arizona, Kansas are the three number one picks I have. And then I picked Kentucky. I think generally speaking, Baylor is the least popular number one overall pick. They've had some injuries there. They lost a ton of guys from their net defending national championship team. They seem to me the least likely team. The South seems like the toughest bracket to me. That's Illinois' bracket, unfortunately. It should be an upset-laden tournament, which is why, of course, I'm picking three number one seeds, the number two seed. And I have Gonzaga over Kansas in the national championship game. Gonzaga over Kansas. I do yes. not have that. You monster. Well, I, I don't have it in large <laughs> part because I never believe in Gonzaga. I get it. But I, do I get ha- it. But I do have them in my final four. If they don't do it this year, they're never doing it. This team is stacked. They are very, very good this year. They were stacked last year. Gonzaga has a top 10 overall pick. That never happens. They did last year. (laughs) It was amazing last year, but they didn't win the championship. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. right. (laughs) I mean, it's just seeing the same thing. Unless you're going to dust off John Stockton. Ronnie Turiaf. Ronnie Turiaf is my favorite underappreciated Gonzaga player of all time, by the way. I interviewed him what for the next What about Dan Dickow? Can I do Dan Dickow? Ronnie Turiaf had the most beautiful French accent. Oh, mm. All right. So in the men's final four, because you got me re- reevaluating now, I actually started scrolling through and oh, looking awesome. at to see if I was. Well, and, and the women's bracket, because I was like, did I do something? No. Well, <laughs> I don't think. Then I-, I go, well, it's not like you're studying the women's team. Why are you so caught up in this NC State thing? Well, they're the and number I think one because... overall seed. I'm not making it up. All right, fine. Kentucky, Gonzaga, Iowa, and Tennessee is what I have. Okay, okay, fair enough. That's good. Kentucky, uh, Iowa. Iowa's a hot pick. That is a very trendy I, pick I, right now. Iowa's a very trendy pick, despite what the governor just did. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, Jody, <laughs> Which, you know, yeah, yeah. talk about that later. But... Trust me, as a Georgia football fan, the governors of championship teams at your <laughs> schools is not always your favorite thing in the world. So, well, you know, it's not like Gavin Newsom wanting fans over during the Super Bowl either. Everybody so. hates every governor. There's no popular governors. You know, I held my breath. Oh, yeah. no, that was the mayor. Yeah, go- saying he held governors his are like sports commissioners. Inevitably, we end up just hating them. So, while you were talking, because mm-hmm. yeah, I'm obsessed with this, Okay, I've gone to several different sites uh-huh. to see who else picked NC State. Other people did. But don't this care. might be your Bengals pick. This uh, might be... <laughs> the Bengals you, made it if, to the NFC Championship game. If you remember, uh. listeners, when we were first doing our NFL playoff draft, I was very anti-Cincinnati Bengals. I laughed at Will for picking them, and they almost won the Super Bowl. That's true. So to me, NC State may end up being his version of the Cincinnati Bengals, but I'm going to stick with my bracket because I think South Carolina is going to win, and I have South Carolina over Texas. South Carolina over Texas. That's reasonable. I don't have NC State getting to the Final Four. I have Indiana, Texas, South Carolina, and Michigan. Oh, okay, good. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we'll, and, we will check. And the only reason why I picked Michigan was, you know, in remembrance of Juwan Howard. I appreciate that. I will, well, mi- well, hopefully <laughs> Michigan's coach will, will handle a potential timeout called late in the game. 
a little bit better. <laughs> little differently. I don't see a lot of NC States. I'm, so I'm going to just assume this is your Cincinnati Bengals. It, well, I was so obsessed when you picked NC State. I was like, am I missing something? No, they're really good, man. But, okay, fine. But you know what? I probably am missing something because I don't watch a lot of college basketball. I understand. So yes, I am missing something. I have watched a college basketball game with you and I've never been more ashamed of my sport. <laughs> that was such a terrible game. Yeah, it was game. Illinois Purdue and it was a bad game. But uh, Okay, we got to get to other topics. Was... We'll talk about this forever. I, don't, I can't take that mockery that I got. It was the worst game only played all year and I was like they're good right and he's like they look like kittens betting at string I was like yeah I know right, you're fine. probably right fine we'll move on we'll move on to my favorite topic bigotry mm, yes everybody's <laughs> Woo-hoo! well I think that you have seen the president speak passionately about his view that a bill like this uh, a bill that would uh, discriminate against families against kids um, put these kids in a position of not getting the support they need um, at a time where that's exactly what they need is discriminatory. It's uh, a form of bullying. Um, it is horrific. I mean, the president has spoken to that. That was Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, talking about President Biden's opposition to Florida's parental rights and education bill, which will become law in the state very shortly. Otherwise known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, it bans any classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity from kindergarten through grade three, prohibits lessons in other grades unless they are, quote, age appropriate, and allow parents to sue school districts if they think teachers are not in compliance. Opposition to the bill has been fierce. Along with President Biden, many Democratic leaders have spoken out against it, and students in Florida have staged walkouts, believing that it will stigmatize LGBTQ plus kids and that a wave of lawsuits could damage cash-strapped school systems. So far, however, only one prominent athlete, tennis player Coco Golf, has voiced opposition to the bill, saying last week, quote, I couldn't imagine not being able to support your identity. I think it's important that they have those conversations in school because that is supposed to be a safe space to talk about everything, end quote. Will, I have two questions. Does it surprise you that no other athletes have said anything about Don't Say Gay? And why do you think so many of them have been silent? I wrote a piece for New York Magazine, I believe in like 2010, about being just kind of generally baffled still at the time that in the four major North American professional sports, there were still no openly gay athletes. It felt like there were things moving in that direction. We've seen the last decade a few. Obviously, we've seen in like WNBA and MLS and certainly in women's soccer. But generally speaking... The argument I made in the piece back then, 12 years ago, was that sports was really the last place, including the military by that point, where the idea of someone being gay would be considered not only unusual, but like institutionally uncomfortable would probably be the, the best way to put that. And obviously there have been a lot of changes, a lot of very positive changes, but it is a little surprising and it's a little not surprising that like th- that cover graph thing, I have seen this nowhere. Part of this, I think, is a little bit of exhaustion. Like it wasn't that long ago that North Carolina was losing its all-star game over the bathroom bill. And last year with Atlanta and, and the voting rights bill, I do think there's a little bit of inherent sports exhaustion of wanting to stay out of this stuff institutionally, even when they know that it's the wrong thing to do. I think there's exhaustion of that. And I think that exhaustion, that sense of, well, you know, it didn't change anything. Right. Like that Atlanta loss still happened. <laughs> like the Atlanta loss still happened. And North Carolina changed mm-hmm. a little bit, just, just changed that bill a little, like it didn't entirely throw it out. So I think there's exhaustion in that regard. I think when you add to that, the idea that 
there is still inherently, I would argue, more at least quiet homophobia in sports than in a lot of other major institutions. I think it's better, but it's certainly not been resolved <laughs> to any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Ask John Gruden about that, by the way, if it's been entirely resolved uh, in, in sports right now. So I think the combination of exhaustion and having these things not work in the past, and while people might not like the law, this being an issue that Frankly, in sports, a lot of people will comment upon if asked, but often don't jump out to get ahead of. It's depressing, but you know, I, that's my theory as to why that might I be. I believe there is a, a measure of homophobia and transphobia in there, only because there's a hint of, or elements of homophobia and transphobia everywhere still. And sports is not immune to the pluses or the minuses of society. I, I think it's, 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 my it's reflective my of that. But to your point, exhaustion is the thing that comes to mind. And if you think about a year ago and the big trials that were showcased a year ago, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Sports was very heavily involved in the commenting on, monitoring, and athletes using their platforms to bring attention to those areas repeatedly. Um, we saw that, to your point, during the, the voters' rights conversations. But this year, during the George, not Officer Chauvin, but the other officers who did not intervene, they've been on trial and you don't see a lot of conversations in sports. Breonna Taylor's mother is trying to get the federal justice system to get involved with the sentencing of the officers that were involved in her death. You don't see a lot of athletes involved in that conversation. I think there is an exhaustion there from the world of sports because so much of the past two years has been about them using that platform to talk about these issues. Not that they don't care about them anymore, but that there is just so much to care about that perhaps they've reached a point that many of us reach from time to time who do this for a living, which is you need a break. You just need a break. And it's during these moments in which you wonder what progress is being made at all, to your point, you know, which laws are actually impacted by athletes using their platforms or people protesting in the streets, like what legislatively or policy has transpired since then? And that starts getting into minutia and details of social justice movements that really Twitter doesn't do a good job of communicating or Instagram. And so you're asking athletes to now not only be aware of the issues at its onset, but also to follow through and be aware of the detailed conversations that's happening on a state legislative level. And I think that's just asking a lot out of people in general and maybe asking a lot of athletes specifically. You know, this don't say gay bill. When I write about it, when I talk about it, when I explain it to people, it's really important that they differentiate between talking about sex and sex education versus sexual orientation. And I know for some, it may sound as if I'm splitting hairs, but allow me to explain the difference. Talking about sexual orientation is something as simple as, I want to grow up and have a wife one day. If a second grader says, 
you know, I want to be a princess and I want to marry a prince. That second grade is talking about their sexual orientation. That's what we're talking about. That creating a space where people who may want to express who they are in a ways that's counter to the majority may find themselves in a position of being caught up in a lawsuit now. <laughs> if a kindergarten teacher is talking about Mrs. Claus and Mr. Claus living together in the North Pole, that kindergarten teacher is talking about sexual orientation. Not directly, obviously, but it's an expression of Mr. and Mrs. Claus sexual orientation that they decided to get married and live the rest of their lives together. So this don't say gay bill, while it may sound as if you're protecting kids from being overly sexualized or sexualized, period, or forcing two-year-olds or three-year-olds or five-year-olds to decide what their gender identity is, that's not what we're discussing here. What we're saying is, can this third grade teacher talk about the infrastructure bill, you know, because there's new roads being built to the school, or the schools are having a new bridge done nearby. And if she happens to mention, or he happens to mention that the secretary for transportation has a husband, they're talking about the secretary of transportation, sexual orientation in an indirect way. And this bill, if that little kid goes home and says, Oh, I found out that, you know, Mr. Buttigieg has a husband. The parent can go, why are you talking about you know, them being gay. I'm going to sue the school district. That's what we're talking about. That's what this bill does. It doesn't protect kids from pornography. It doesn't protect the kids from sexual predators, wherever the fuck that the, the press secretary for Governor Ron DeSantis was trying to suggest about the predatory nature of LGBTQ people as if, you know, there's a long list of queer people molesting children in Florida, which there is not. <laughs> it's a bill that solves a problem that isn't there and instead exasperates a situation that's trying to heal itself, which is queer kids finding comfort in school, period. It is disappointing that athletes and the sports world in general did not get involved uh, a lot more in trying to stop this bill or draw attention to this bill. I understand why, because of the exhaustion that you mentioned. But at the end of the day, we could be exhausted as much as we want. Our voting rights are still being attacked. Reproductive rights are still being attacked. Gerrymandering is still happening. So we can be exhausted, but that's not stopping the ills that's hurting society and thus requires us to continue to pay attention whether we're exhausted or not. I mean, I think that's what they're counting on, right? They're counting on us being exhausted. Like if this bill would have come out, say, right. August of 2020, it would have right. been, been a bomb going off. It would have been a massive, massive thing. But it's not coming out August 2020. It's coming out in March of 2022. I've been more politically active during that time than I have ever been in my life. I know a ton of people that feel that were the exact same way that were. And I think part of it was Trump, if I'm being frank. Having someone like that in the Oval Office was so just felt inherently wrong to so many people that you felt like you needed to do something. Like you felt like you needed to do something when you saw something wrong because right. you felt so helpless otherwise. And I do think that that kind of energy is not there right now. I think it's another reason Democrats are going to get wiped out in the midterms because <laughs> I think that kind of power and energy is not there, which on a human level, you kind of understand. But the people right. behind this bill, right. they got plenty of energy. 
they will continue doing this shit. So it's hard. And it's something that I try to balance myself of, Ugh, I just want to just relax and watch my right. Illini game and not think about Ukraine right now or concentrate on my career. Like I think a lot of athletes are doing to be like, you know what? I really worked a lot in 2020 and I'm still in the game, but like, I need a break. I'm going to concentrate on what I'm doing and I hope that's okay. Yep. And on one hand you get it and you do understand, but the people behind this bill are not relaxing and they are not relenting. And that exhaustion is exactly I mean, what they're counting they're on. Succeeding in, in certain ways. You know, I'm, I'm very happy that the Disney CEO has come out and apologized about the lack of effort from the corporate side in terms of challenging that bill, has stopped donating or at least suspended all donations to people who were attached to that bill and reiterated its support of the LGBTQ plus community. You know, and there have certainly been other people in the political arena who are using their capital to challenge these bills. But when it comes to sports and athletes, I think that what 2020 taught us was that if they wanted to, they can move mountains. And what 2022 is telling us is that they don't want to move every mountain all of the time. Not to, you know, blow his horn or anything like that, but LeBron James was trying to win an NBA championship, acclimate a new teammate who they gave up a lot of pieces for. So they're trying to do that, navigate COVID, fight for voter rights, and he made a fucking movie, Space Jam 2. <laughs> yeah, and keep, and the, keep, the, season and keep going. the season going, right. by the way. Maybe there were a couple While times- While also managing his like production that. company and everything else in his portfolio in his life. That's a lot. Plus, oh, by the way- he had to maintain his own body. In addition to the fact he's expected to deal with the global trade issues with China. <laughs> like, we were asking him to do a great deal while also being still considered the best in his sport. So I can understand why someone like him or Steph or KD, even Kyrie, you know, who I know a lot of people like to clown, but Kyrie was very active politically in 2020 and 2021 and and still so this year as well and and so i i think that while it is disappointing it comes with a measure of, of i understand too it's a lot i get it and and listen the people doing that we'll close right. with this but like the people doing this bill they're not doing anything else right <laughs> this is what they're doing they right. have no titles to go win i'm sure their children hate them right? honestly a lot we should be pushing for those politicians who say they are allies, those politicians and political figures who say they stand with the LGBTQ plus community. They're the ones who need to stay on top of this story now. They're the ones who need to be doing their jobs. You know, LeBron James, KD, Serena, Coco, Venus, you know, all of the athletes that we saw Aaron Rodgers to a certain degree during 2020 and 2021, they all use their platforms to try to address this issue of social justice. And that's not their jobs. So I think we should be demanding more from the people whose jobs it actually is to address these issues and not expect athletes to be everything to all people all the time, because that's impossible for any human to do. Okay, LZ. Let's take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk about one more bad person in our third segment. <laughs> Come Let's on, discuss now. the all. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yes, uh, we're going to discuss the always lucrative and sometimes turbulent times 
of the most famous owner in sports, the president and general manager of the Dallas Cowboys, and the heavily lifted Jerry Jones. All right, my friend, Will, we're back. Right from the get-go, I would have uh, uh, done the Tom Landry thing differently. I really uh, felt that the reason I was buying the team was because of the respect that I had for Tom Landry and and the respect that I had for Tex Schramm and and, uh, specifically as it would relate to the Dallas Cowboys. That didn't come across that way, obviously. When uh, we made the change there, it came across as being disrespectful, it came across as being cold, uh, rather than than uh, I was enthusiastic at a time when you're not supposed to be enthusiastic. Those were the unmistakable dulcet tones of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in 2019, talking about one of his most well-known blunders after he bought the team for $140 million in 1989 when he fired legendary head coach Tom Landry in humiliating fashion, setting off a firestorm of protest in Dallas. But that, friends, was just the start of the controversies that have dogged him to this day. Let's start with his football decisions, shall we? He also fired Jimmy Johnson, the head coach who replaced Landry and led the Cowboys to two Super Bowl wins because Johnson refused to give up control of the team's football decisions to Jones. The Cowboys were able to win the Super Bowl in 1995 with the team that Johnson put together, but they haven't made it back since, with many people pointing fingers at Jones' poor personnel decisions and penchant for hiring yes-men as head coaches who cater to his every whim. He enraged his fellow owners by disregarding the league's revenue-sharing agreement and striking his own lucrative sponsorship deals. He tried to get the commissioner Roger Goodell fired because Jones thought the suspension of star running back Ezekiel Elliott for domestic violence was excessive. And, oh yes, threatened to bench any player who joined the pregame Colin Kaepernick-inspired protests against police brutality. Ah, yes. Oh, also, there's a bunch of off-the-field stuff. Jones was embarrassed when racy pictures taken of him in compromising positions with strippers were published on gossip websites, had to apologize for making a racially insensitive comment on a video a fan took of him, kept his spokesperson on the payroll for another six years, even after he was caught allegedly snapping pictures of cheerleaders while changing clothes in the locker room, and of taking upskirt photos of Jones' daughter during the 2015 NFL draft. And now, of course, comes the news that Jones, who's been married for almost 60 years, somehow had a child out of wedlock and paid off the mom to keep things quiet. But even with all the turmoil, Jones is immensely successful. He's now worth an estimated $10 billion. And boy, doesn't he deserve every one of them? And has turned the Cowboys into the world's most valuable sports franchise, estimated at $6.5 billion. And of course, is one of the NFL's most powerful owners, helping engineer the Rams move to Los Angeles and the Raiders' relocation to Las Vegas, among many high profile business moves. LZ, Jerry Jones remains one of the most famous figures in sports, but I think he's as big of a villain, if not more so, as Washington Commanders owner Dan Snyder, who is being investigated for sexual harassment and oversaw the most toxic workplace in the NFL and is generally known as a doof in every possible way. Jerry Jones is like a legit, outside of the world of sports, a terrible person, but we're all like, yeah, that's Jerry Jones. That's America, man. Just fake it till you make it. Smile for the camera and and have... Big stakes and stripper poles and diamond-encrusted aisles and seats at your game. Why does Jones get a pass for this? I think there's two things at play. Number one, 
His players love him, man. Players love him. I've spoken with, hung out with, gotten drunk with, partied with, and friends with so many former Dallas Cowboys players. And they all love Jerry, man. <laughs> For the and, record, can we stop the rest of the podcast and just let you just tell stories uh, from those times? <laughs> out? I, don't, I don't give a shit about Jerry Jones anymore. Let's, let's just go ahead and tell these stories. No, sorry. Man, go ahead. Make your point. Make your point. They love them some Jerry. And, you know, I think part of it is that Jerry very much presents like a player. Certainly a player from a certain era. It is money, 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 party, 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 bitches and hoes, winning championships. He represents this entire misogynistic underbelly of professional sports in general, but football, NFL football in particular, and he's never let that go. He's never tried to separate himself from that. And as a result, I think players, well, certainly early on, felt like he was one of them. And at this point, where they may not feel like he's one of them, they feel like he gets them, right? And he doesn't just see them as pieces to his enterprise. He almost treats them like a buddy or a contributor or even a partner in the success. Once you're down with the Cowboys, you're almost always like a Cowboy with Jerry. And I think that's a lot of it. Snyder doesn't have that kind of affection no, from his players. No, no, he does not. He's he doesn't despised. Have, I don't think he, he doesn't have that kind of affection from his family. I don't right, think. right, right. <laughs> he's, he, he's despised Will. They hated working for him. They hate talking to him. They hate being around him. And so when you have unnamed sources of a owner that is loved versus unnamed sources of an owner who is hated, you can understand how the narratives are divergent despite their behaviors being very similar to your point. But then there's also point number two. And I think this also speaks to a larger conversation about what we were discussing earlier with President Trump, which is personality goes a long way, man. It goes a long way. <laughs> and if you remember the great debate between JFK and Richard Nixon, I believe it was the first televised presidential mm -hmm. debate. Mm -hmm. On paper, Richard Nixon lapped JFK's legislative accomplishments many times over. <laughs> Not to say that JFK wasn't a successful member of Congress. He was. Right. It's just that I understand. Nixon had been in the game a long time and was really accomplished. But he couldn't pass the eyeball test. You know, they said he was sweaty he didn't look nearly as telegenic as, as JFK, who, by the way, was hot for a president, but not hot for like the general population. I just want to get that <laughs> not out Not like there. normal person hot, right? Yeah, like, yeah. right, exactly. Right. But for a president, especially back then, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was like yeah. number one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was able to look good on television. And as a result, he won that election, but also he forever won our hearts because of that. And Jerry Jones, especially when he burst into the scene, was amazing as a sports owner. From a personality and pizzazz and got it kind of perspective, he rivaled Jerry Buss, Dr. Buss. You know, Dr. Buss was that guy for a long time with the Lakers. And then comes Jerry Jones, who brings in his own version of Hollywood, but to Dallas. And everything is bigger and is broader. And he's surrounded by these cheerleaders. And 
He's dripping in just manhood and power and baller. And you really liked that a lot in him. And because of that, he was able to ride that wave and not necessarily be challenged on any of the really disparaging and disgusting things that he was doing because we liked him so much. So I think it was those two things that play. And Dan Snyder is just not that dude either. He's more Nixon. You know, <laughs> he's not telegenic. He's not someone you want to hang out with. He's not someone who drips cool. He's someone you want to beat up still like you're back in high school. <laughs> and But in addition, and is also stupid. Like, at, least, <laughs> at, least, at least Dixon was kind of smart. Well, he's not, he's not that stupid because yeah. he's, you know, yeah. NFL but, owner. But I, know I hear what you're saying. Yes, yes. So they didn't have the gravitas, I would say. Yes. Uh, of yes, yes. And I think there's an element to that. And I, I said, so we don't have to go down the Jerry Jones rabbit hole too much, but I, I'm watching the Winning Time series and putting Jones in the context of bus, I think is a smart way to look at it. It's telling that that show starts with him at the Playboy Mansion. And yep. like Jerry Jones has got like a little bit of heft to him. It feels though eventually that has to curdle at some point. It curdled with Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner tapped into something about like the Eastern seaboard in the tri-state area. Jones taps into something about America. Everyone might be like, oh, what an asshole. Wouldn't it be awesome to be that asshole? That yeah. would be amazing to be that asshole. Nobody wanted to be Steinbrenner, but I think people want to be Jerry Jones. Right. It, he's the inner asshole within all of us. That sounded like a weird thing to say. <laughs> uh, the inner like, asshole. <laughs> let me try that. Let me try that again. Uh, you want to workshop that first? Before, uh... <laughs> the, the the part of us that always would secretly wants to be an asshole that gets away with everything. I think Jerry Jones represents that to a lot of people, and I think that's why he gets away with a lot of stuff. And he was winning. Don't forget that yeah, part. Yes, yeah, been and a while. Been a while. But yeah, it's been a while. Been a while. But he's America's king. Yes. Or at least exactly. that's what they tell us. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Never. Okay, Will, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. There are things I believe that players should have that's important for them. They should have the security of knowing that they're going to be supported by the organization, the coaching staff. It's a very tenuous world as it is to be a player. Uh, and so putting yourself on the line, you need to have that support. This year, the team has had a little run. We're anticipating it's going to be a good one, and they'll get into the playoffs. As we go forward, we have a great chance and a great opportunity. This is the best place to play basketball. You just heard a very optimistic Phil Jackson at his first press conference as president of the New York Knicks. Eight years ago this week, the Hall of Fame former coach signed a five-year, $60 million deal, hoping to lead the franchise to his first NBA championship since, wait for it, 1973! Good Lord, that's a long time! Jackson, who has won more titles than any other head coach, took the job with much fanfare, but it didn't take long for him to spoil all of that goodwill that came his way. Jackson ran the team for three full seasons with the Knicks stumbling to a combined record of 80 and 166 and never coming close to making the playoffs. Jackson had a habit of hiring incompetent head coaches. His free agent signings were uniformly poor, if not outright disastrous, and he alienated his two best players, Carmelo Anthony and Chris Porzingis. He was unwilling to adapt to the modern game, 
Jackson forced the Knicks to use the antiquated triangle offense that worked so well in the 90s, just like Autotune, but wasn't so useful in 2016, just like Autotune. <laughs> and to top it all off, Jackson was basically accused of being racist by LeBron James after Jackson called LeBron's close business associates a posse, just like he was in the 90s. Will, when Phil Jackson started with the Knicks, he was considered to have one of the best basketball minds going. But in those three short years, he did everything he could to make us think otherwise. In the history of the NBA, has anyone done more to trash his professional reputation than Phil Jackson? Yeah, <laughs> you look at the last dance because he pops up in every once in a while. And it's funny how much smaller he looks in that, like during the 90s, Jordan obviously was the star, but mm -hmm. Phil Jackson was considered like oh, God, the yes. maestro of those teams and even got a little bit of that when he was with Kobe and Shaq later on. What they really need <laughs> is someone to oversee all of these wild talents who would not be able to figure out otherwise without his unique brand of Native American mysticism or something. Who knows what Phil Jackson what was kind doing. of like cooking up. What was it? Pat Riley called him Big Chief Triangle. I think is what he called him. Which uh, I'm under. <laughs> I think Pat Riley would rewrite that today. But nevertheless, I get. I, I understand what he was saying. Yes. And it's funny when you take a step back from really what made Phil Jackson great. There's two things that Phil Jackson were really was really really good at. Neither of which knew we're going to ever do him any good with the Knicks. One, he was able to get the best out of talented people and put them in positions to where they could succeed. Forget Jordan or Pippen. Really getting Rodman, that much productivity out of Rodman for those three years, I always consider one of the greatest things that Jackson's ever done as a coach. <laughs> to be able to pull that off, to get Rodman focused like that, obviously more of that was Rodman, but I think Jackson, in a way that, like, uh, ask Bob Hill about uh, trying to coach uh, Rodman. Like, it was obviously a difficult time. He was able to put, put people in that right position. I don't think he was ever thought of as, like, a great tactical mind. I think the triangle was more a Tex Winter thing, and even that was kind of outdated by the time. But more players respected him, even if they hated him. They respected him, and that was something. And the second thing, and this is probably the most important thing, he was smart enough to recognize, oh, I'll go to the team that has Jordan. Oh, I'll go to the team that has Kobe and Shaq. That's a good idea. I'll go coach those teams and I'll look like the genius when they inevitably figure it out because they're supremely all-time talents. That is a skill. People make bad decisions about that yep. all the time. I totally understand. People don't always get it figured out. So he gets credit for that, but none of that was going to help him in New York. <laughs> New York was an opposite situation of what was going on there. He was never in charge of putting the talent together. Mock Jerry Krause all you want. Do you think Phil Jackson was going out to Central Arkansas to scout and draft Scottie Pippen? I do not think he was doing that. So the idea that Phil Jackson would be in charge of talent acquisition was a mistake in the first place. And then it spoke to the generational idea. But the Braun thing is a perfect example. He looked at Phil Jackson like, please, please get out of here. And he was correct to do so. You know, when I think about Phil Jackson, and I know I laughed a lot during the intro because it's funny, you know, because I remember the coverage, the Knicks are back. It was a bit controversy yeah. that he was splitting from the Lakers to go and follow almost in the footsteps of Pat Riley, if you will, and head to New York. I would say that the big difference, though, with Phil Jackson was ownership, it really was ownership. When you think about the franchises where he had a success, Chicago, Lakers, competent ownership, 
competent ownership that knew what they knew and more importantly knew to step away and not get involved. Knew enough about the sport to hire the right people to make those daily decisions. And then once they hired the right person, got out of the way and let those people make those key decisions. We saw it with the Lakers. Yeah. We saw it in Chicago. The Knicks were fucked up before Phil got there. Oh, yeah. They're fucked and up they're now. Still, and they're still <laughs> fucked up now. Right? What's, what's the common ground? What's the common thread throughout all that? And Phil has been, you know, to this segment's point, Phil has been out of New York a long time. So we can't say this is still remnants of Phil Jackson's legacy. This is about the ownership. Yeah, I know. It's about someone who inherited a franchise who may not be the sharpest tool in the NBA shed, constantly being put in positions to make the biggest decision for this franchise, which is who's going to run it, who's going to assemble the team, and who's going to coach it. And some owners are involved in all three. Some owners pick a team president and just let them run it, but they always make sure they get that key decision right. So that if they do decide to take a lesser role in the, the day-to-day operations of that franchise, they know the person that they put in place can handle that. Mr. Dolan has not been able to do that, real. That's a fair assessment. <laughs> and, and I don't blame him because when I was at ESPN, the magazine, and I was helping to run our NBA department and then eventually run our NBA department, throughout that tenure, every single time he tried to do something with a big name acquisition, New York exploded in joy. <laughs> Isaiah Thomas was supposed to have been the savior. Yeah. Phil Jackson was supposed to have been the savior. Amari you know, was Amari was going to be the savior. Amari was, was going to be the Like, yeah. these are big time names. And Phil Jackson's in the Hall of Fame. Isaiah Thomas is in the Hall of Fame. Donnie Walsh was a good GM. Donnie Walsh was fine. Donnie Walsh was a great... So it's not that he's not trying to go out and get names. And when he has gotten those names, again, being in the center of New York at ESPN in this sport, I know about the excitement and what was being said both in print as well as behind closed doors. Like, they're coming back. Oh, yeah, here they come. Give them a couple of years. I've heard that over and over and over again in New York. So his inability to find the right person isn't solely based upon him not trying. He's trying. He just isn't lucky. Lucky. Well, he's still him. No, like, I mean, but but it's <laughs> but it's lucky. No one knew who the fuck Phil Jackson was. Yeah, I they got lucky. And and when it came to the Lakers, they fired Paul Westhead, and they took a chance on Pat Riley. He didn't have this resume that was sterling beforehand. And the same thing when it comes to, to Donnie. Once upon a time, Donnie wasn't a genius in Indianapolis. <laughs> he made himself one. So, the, you know, he hasn't been able to get lucky. And I, I think we don't factor that in enough when we talk about the legacy of the New York Knicks. So when I think about Phil Jackson, right, mm. and his legacy in New York, yeah, he fucked some shit up. But he was also the one who found Chris Porzingis to begin with, who, you know, hasn't panned out all the way, but he was a thing for a short period of time. He had a moment. He looked, he looked he had like a, he was He had unicorn. a moment, and Phil found him, and he got lucky when he found him. I think he was fourth overall. He could have gone anywhere. 
Phil saw him, took advantage of it. It worked out. But a lot of things did work out. And I know that Phil made mistakes, but I think at the end of the day, when it comes to the Knicks as a whole, it isn't just about, you know, ineptitude. It's also about bad luck. And they've been wrestling with both for 30 years. Well, uh, having it not just be about ineptitude, but also somewhat about bad luck is literally the nicest thing that anyone said about Jim Dolan in about 25 (laughs) years. So I'm sure he will happily take it. All right. I mean, mean, Amari Stoudemire needs just totally just disintegrated like in half a season on him. Yeah, but like he wasn't insured. People were so nervous about his knees, he couldn't get insurance. So it was not like that much of a shock. But yeah, I'm part of that New York get excited train. I get excited about Anthony Randolph, LZ. So you can imagine how excited I got about Amari Stoudemire. And that's our show for this week. Thanks everyone for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in Tuesday, March 29th at 12.30 p.m. for our next live summercast on Twitch at twitch.tv slash the recount. That's twitch.tv slash the recount. And on both the recount Twitter and the recount YouTube platforms where you can see me wearing my fancy Lakers gear as we barrel through mediocrity, I guess. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienemy, Megan Burney, Roz Guevara, Mark Levine, and Marshall Eisen. Music is by Gloria Tales, with some sound design by David Wilson. We'll be back with another podcast next Wednesday. And who knows, maybe Tom Brady will retire again. We can only hope. We could use some more hot takes. It's a sports podcast stimulus package every time that dude does anything.